Hi, welcome to The Minefield. We're only, what, three weeks into the new season of The Minefield and already we're about to do our first sequel. Well, it's a sequel of sorts. <laughs> I don't know what it is. doesn't matter how long the show is, it's not long enough or we don't have many it's ideas. True. You tell us. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Hang <laughs> Which on. is it, Scott? Hang on. Did you really just say maybe it's that we don't have enough ideas? Really? Well, is that yeah, one of the... if we just keep doing sequels to the same ideas, yeah. Yeah, you could actually say, though, that pretty much every show we've done has been a sequel in one form or another. Well, we don't have... Are you saying, are you saying we are Radio National's answer to ACDC? Where it's oh just the same Lord. album? No. There's a great story about that. Someone went up to Angus Young and said... Hey, Angus, you've only made the same album 11 times or whatever it was. And he said, that's not true. We've made the same album 13 times. (laughs) The numbers might be wrong, but you get the idea. But I think what's great about that is just the commitment to it. It's like, yes, we've found the thing. It's brilliant. Why wouldn't we just keep doing it? I'm not sure we could say all of that. But are you saying that we have a similar sort of thing? No, I, I really hope not. I do think that it wouldn't take a great deal of imagination to go back and to discover a bundle, a cluster of underlying commitments and curiosities that run through pretty much every show we've done, which is a vast difference from the same tedious chord progression. Yes. Uh, Yeah, ACDC, good Lord. Oh, hang on, you've got a problem with... ACDC and Guns N' Roses. No, they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. So there's a show that I've been wanting to do. We're going to have to find a way of doing it at some stage. I mean, taste and values between parents and children. I know that the best way for me to get my kids not to listen to something is for me to commend it. Yep. I know the best way... Only after a certain age. Yep. I know the best way of ensuring that my kids will listen to something is if I tell them how much I hate it. Or if you make it verboten. Yeah, well. But I tell you what, I have done everything in my power to try to convince my kids that every second they spend listening to Guns N' Roses and ACDC is is atrophying to an astonishing degree their capacity of developing fully formed aesthetic sensibilities. <laughs> so you refer them to a symphony played on a cat gut strung violin. Yeah, something, something like yes. that. Or it's so, a queen. I mean, I actually got, I try to get my youngest listening to Night at the Opera. Oh, um, how'd yeah, it go? Uh, not very well. Uh, but I'm in it for the long haul, Walid. I am. Anyway, why don't you explain how today is a continuation of last week. Okay. Well, I, I should also say you've been incredibly indulgent. You're, you're being very kind to me to start the new year. That's not <laughs> usually the case. Usually you get exasperated with me by about the first week of February. <laughs> That's not true. This this year, you're just being sweet. I don't care what people say about you. You're really no, no, a softie. lazy. I'm just down. not turning up to oh, any really? of <laughs> Anyway, we had, um, we had Professor Marianne Wolf from UCLA last week talking about what habits of digital reading are doing to our habits or our capacity for deep reading. We, if you like, cracked open the first half of the question of literacy, namely our ability to read in a manner that is more than just the ingestion or the searching out of information. So I think it's fairly safe to say that if one gets to the end of Emma and says it's all about Emma Woodhouse finally falling in love with Mr. Knightley, then you have missed a colossal amount of what's going on in that book. And that summary tells you exactly nothing about its internal narrative and ethical dynamics. So if you just read to get to the point, if you just read in order to get the information and you don't practice certain things, which Marianne Wolf calls deep reading, the deep reading habits of lingering with uncertainty, of sticking with text, of being willing to stay with and remain with larger blocks of text, with larger sequences of text like novels and and so on. If you don't cultivate those habits, then there are certain other fundamental skills that may well make up what it means for humans to be moral agents that can atrophy in the process. But you mentioned at the end of last week's show where we did the first half of literacy. You know what we haven't done? We haven't even gone anywhere near writing. Mm. And that, I think, makes up the topic for today. There's been a lot of public conversation, a lot of hand-wringing about a new innovation, the next step, if you like, in AI generativity. Uh, A lot of people will have heard about ChatGTP, an experimental 
chatbot that was released in November last year by the company OpenAI, a company that has since been infused with billions of dollars by Microsoft, who clearly thinks that this is the next step, this is the next stage in our interactions in our lives online. That set off something like an arms race in the production and the release or the commitment on the part of technology companies, or technology platforms to AI. So we have Google getting ready to, to release its open AI is getting ready to release the next step, GPT-4, uh, which is supposed to be even better when it comes to text generation. So what these effectively are, by the way, I think Microsoft's trying to use similar sorts of technology to introduce it into its own search engine, right? Yeah, I mean, AI is already sort of heavily, heavily involved in search results. Well, no doubt, because that's one of the reasons there was this thought that chat GPT would displace Google, which I don't think it will, but the fact that you can have that thought says there's overlap. But it's just interesting that Microsoft, the, the way the reporting is, and I don't know what any of this means, but is that it's trying to fuse chat GPT-like technology into its search engine, hmm. which sounds like that's a step removed, ahead, whatever, of what was there beforehand. I it's mean, all moving in this one direction, there's no doubt. That, that, that's right. I mean, what if you think about what search engines really primarily do, they take your question and they point you to other sites where you might get yep. those answers. What uh, chatbots integrated into search engines would do is not simply take you to those other sites, but it would then synthesize in an instant gargantuan amounts of information into something that's more like an answer rather than a referral. Yep. And that then has been what, I mean, at last count, there were over 100 million users, upwards of 7 to 8 million uh, users each day that get onto ChatGTP. The funny thing about it, though, is it's been treated mostly like a kind of curiosity. If I ask it this, what will it say? If I play around with this, what will it do? If I pose this existential question to it, what will happen? Uh, philosophy professors have engaged in and published the results of some really unusual philosophical repartee with the underlying software. So, I mean, to some extent, in the sense that it is a curiosity, a kind of fascination, a sort of almost an online toy, you could say it's a really, really sophisticated version of something like Snapchat. On, on the one hand, I wonder if it's the kind of curiosity that's going to endure. But when you couple the invention of highly sophisticated, astonishingly fluent artificial generative AI that produces text, and that produces text that, yes, it draws on the text that already exists. Uh, in other words, it draws the only thing that can draw on because it can't, it's not creative in and of itself. It simply draws on what else the internet has to offer as a way of creating its answers. But one of the things that it's raised the prospect of is if you can type into it, write a 2,000-word essay on the problem of caste and gender hierarchy in Jane Austen's Emma. And it can come up with something that is, for the most part, serviceable or passable. Mm. The thing that many people have become alarmed about is what is this going to do to the ongoing struggle on the part of primary, secondary, and higher education institutions in the struggle against plagiarism? Um, which is probably a deeper struggle than just this. But that's been one of the big issues. And so you've had universities, schools, banning students from, from using it. But I think there are other questions. Or embracing it. What do you mean? Well, the, the other line of thinking in educational circles is you make it completely legal. Yeah. You say either that you can use it, but you have to declare it. Yes. Or you redesign... I mean, you, you, or you just don't even bother with the question of whether or not you're going to ban it, but you just redesign assessment tasks with its presence in mind. Yes. So you try to create a situation where using it doesn't particularly help you, mm. or at least not help you in a relevant way, which I think probably is the only feasible response in the end, no matter what your policy is on banning it. But It is interesting. That, I mean, Zainab Tefeci has actually suggested uh, something called flipping the classroom, where effectively what you do at home is you listen to online lectures. You do the necessary reading and work from home. In other words, you don't do assessment at home, but rather when it comes to class time, when it comes to in-person 
work, then that becomes, well, not fully offline, but it, it's you're incapable, you're unable to then use these types of corner-cutting technology. Yeah, which, and I understand that may be the way it has to go. I, I have concerns about it, even as I see it as probably being inevitable. One of the problems I have with it is it's going to wipe out whole forms of assessment that are very valuable. Yeah, I couldn't right? agree more. So the idea of setting someone an essay that they go away and cobble together over the course of a semester that runs to, I don't know, 5,000 words and has to be well-researched and so on, if you can get a passable result out of chat GPT on something like that, I don't, I haven't actually played with chat GPT, but so I don't know how well it would go with referencing things like that. But if you can come up with something passable and all you're really after is something passable, then what's going to happen is if universities pivot away from asking students to do those assessments, all kinds of skills that are yeah. associated with those assessments will just be lost. I agree. And the art, not even the art, the struggle, the battle of pulling together a really good research essay is one of the most educational things I think I've probably ever done in my educational life. Yep. Exams as well. I actually think quite highly of exams. Mm. I know that's probably old-fashioned, but I, I do. Did <laughs> you do sort of, them and so on. Did you do sort of in-room essay-length exams? Yep, I did yeah. all kinds. I mean, so I, I did my tertiary education was a double degree, so I did engineering and law. Mm. So the legal stuff was very much, there were, you know, hypothetical scenarios we had to apply the law. There yeah. were then essay type questions. So all of that happened. And then you think of engineering exams, it's a totally different situation. Mm, it's, you know, mathematical, often scientific. And so you are, you know, scribbling out all kinds of workings <laughs> in a book in real time as you go through an exam and there's that time pressure. So I reckon I actually had a pretty broad experience of what exams can be hmm. across different disciplines. And I tend to think they're actually pretty good. Yes. But so is the essay that is set. And I think to rob students of the of that experience, of that educational experience, that formative experience of having to struggle with those things, I think in the long run will be a problem. Yep. Um, I think even though I don't know that there's an alternative, right, I suppose maybe it is. What it is is you go, well, we're just not going to recalibrate around cheats. And if people want to cheat their way to a, a degree, then they're welcome to do that in the end and they'll come a cropper somewhere else. Yeah, they'll but, crash but on the, the effect that that else. has on the academic integrity of the institutions and of the institution's totally. quote-unquote products, I think Absolutely. is catastrophic. Yes, yes. I mean, and at a time, by the way, when I think that's already under assault. That's right. So I think that's a real problem. But the other option is, I mean, maybe some ingenious new ways of uh, assessing will be invented that aren't simply we're going to make you sit in a room and, and write old school exams. Maybe, you know, for example, I was talking to someone I know works in a university and they, they had an idea of, okay, what we'll do is we'll set an essay question and you have to get chat GPT to write the essay, but then you have to critique it. Yeah. Thought, okay, that sounds like a neat idea, but it doesn't quite... It doesn't ask you to engage with the same skills and develop the same tools. That's right. That, and that's what I, I don't I mean. Look, this is very early. We haven't even had an assessment cycle with chat GPT yet in universities, I don't think. So we don't know no. exactly how it's going to play out. But and they, I think that, I should, that, that should place a certain limit on the amount of hand-wringing, the amount of panic that is at play. At the same time, I should say, you know, years ago, two decades ago now, I did a lot of work with my crazy old Slovenian friend, Slavoj Žižek, his, because he fundamentally hates students and can't stand teaching, uh, he has an elegant solution. Um, I mean, this is going to unleash an arms race, isn't it? Not just between competing AIs, but also between chatbots like ChatGPT or Google Bard and, for instance, the plagiarism detection software. Yeah, uh, so, which will always be a step behind. That's right. So Zizek's response is, fine, let the students use their AI to write their essays. I'll use my detection software to mark their essays. They never have to see me. I never have to see them, and we can both <laughs> get on to the stuff that we really want to be doing, which is, I think, <laughs> right. in just about every way, the worst of all solutions to yes, this. Yes, but very elegant. Very elegant. The thing is, Waleed, and look, I'm always reluctant when something splashy like ChatGTP emerges as the new gadget, the new trinket, the new curiosity, the new harbinger of doom, or the new solution to, you know, life's daily 
conundrums. This, of course, is in continuity with all sorts of digital products that we have been using for decades to cater to our lessening commitment to the human activity of writing. So if you think about certain basic things like predictive text or autocorrect, if you think about the grammar yeah. checks that have and spell checks that have been built into word processing software, these are all to varying degrees things that sit alongside the task of human writing, whether that be incidental communication over text message, or whether this be the, the construction of, uh, of essays or op-eds, there's something there that tells us, is this really what you mean? This seems to be non-standard or erroneous grammar. Is this really the way that you think this word is supposed to be spelled? And there have been all these concerns that, well, by allowing this sort of intelligent or semi-intelligent program to do the checking for us, the checking of our grammar, the checking of our spelling. Is this going to weaken our commitment to grammar? Is this going to weaken our commitment to spelling in the same way that, for instance, over-reliance on calculators might weaken our commitment to certain basic mathematical functions? And I think the answer in many respects is probably yes. Of course it does. Uh, unless you see these things as genuinely educative, in other words, as not simply doing the job for you, but highlighting when you've made an error so that hopefully you don't make that error again in the future. I mean, the results seem to be fairly mixed. Some students say, I don't think about grammar. I'll simply accept the suggestions when they come. Others will try to learn from their mistakes. I fear that that's a ever-decreasing minority. And then, Well, there's another group yeah. that just wants to argue with it. Yes. That's not that, a mistake. That's me, Why actually. do you think that's a mistake? Yeah, that's me. It's me too. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but then you've got this other suite of programs, things like Grammarly or, or even programs like PseudoWrite that do far more than just give you little suggestions along the way, but help create something like the entire architecture of a piece of writing. They get you off that initial blank page and they give you something that is not just passable, but something, if you like, a base level, something you can begin working with and maybe even infuse your personal voice into. Um, that's the ideal, anyway. And then, Waleed, you've got these other, I mean, if you think about the extended version of, say, predictive texting, you've got something like predictive emailing. So mm -hmm. this is the email that you've received. Uh, I mean, everything from Microsoft Outlook right through to Gmail they provide varying degrees of automated responses from the one yeah. line, thanks, I'll get that back to you shortly, right through to here's a template for a full response to the email that you've received. I think I know where you're going with this. Can I ask you a question? Please. At this point. Is it your view that the sort of creeping lack of engagement, interest in commitment to good writing and its tools in those menial examples necessarily spreads or pervades everything else that we intend to write? Or, this is actually now I think about it, a version of a question I asked last week. Yes. Or <laughs> does it clear the field? Because a lot of the, a, a lot of, so create the space for good writing. Mm -hmm. So a, a lot of those sort of examples you're giving, what they allow you to do, I mean, I actually don't think they do allow you to do this because they very rarely provide suggestions I find helpful. But what they could do is allow you to get rid of the stuff that isn't good writing and can just never be because it's menial. Yeah. And, and sorry, what are you talking about there? You mean the first uh, draft? You mean the no, email? I mean, administrative mean the... emails. Okay. Um, that sort of, there are whole workplaces, I think, where just about every email seems to be being done by chat GPT now from what I can gather, right? Because it's all just menial administrative stuff, right? Meeting times, whatever. That by that, you can kind of clear the decks, and then when you actually need to focus on writing, you can do that properly. Is that a possible outcome of all of this? Or do you think it's too much of a, a matter of ethical and moral formation in our attitude to writing? Let, let me go back to the question of, of moral encounter that we talked about last week. Yeah. Because I think that reading, reading properly done, is a process or a condition of possibility of moral encounter, where 
two different minds meet, and one is prepared, if you like, to be attentive to the other, to linger with the other, rather than simply scan or skim. So scanning or skimming or, or flicking or flipping, these would all be versions of contempt, whereas deep attention uh, yeah. would be the equivalent of the process of giving one's over, oneself over to the moral reality of another person. Look, administrative emails, you and I both hate them. Uh, I hate the amount of time that goes into responding to inter. I shouldn't be saying this on an ABC. <laughs> anyway, but you, know, you you resent the amount of time that yeah. gets spent doing relatively mindless things. But, well, it, it, that's not where things are remaining. I mean, not only are there templates that you can purchase, but also, I mean, there are entire generative programs that give you heartfelt emotion, what are meant to be uh, emotionally tone-appropriate responses to requests uh, or personal emails that have been sent to you. Um, and I think there's something there that it just, it feels instinctively, I think it feels morally inappropriate or wrong to know, for instance, that I've received a response that was automated from someone that I otherwise quite like or respect. And I know that it's automated because I saw that same template. That yep. suggests responding to you properly, even if briefly, isn't worth my while. I yeah, don't. My mum makes the same argument about handwriting. Oh, isn't that interesting? And I, I mean, that is a moral argument that I think can can be made. But can I just? You said, does it free us up to other important things? Writing is such a skill that has so many intellectual, personal, emotional, moral dimensions that I'm so reluctant to give quarter at any point. For me, Waleed, there's nothing more terrifying than a blank page. Mm -hmm. Anything that I've ever written, three quarters of it will be spent in that initial section. Yep, agreed. Okay. And there are all sorts of, and I, I know this about you because you begin things better than anybody that I know. Um, but that fear is appropriate. Because to some extent, what that fear is saying is, I don't know if I have anything to say. I don't know what I think about this until I begin writing it. And then this idea that what writing is, is the taking of what we already think or already know to be true, or the words that are already living inside of us, and simply splooching them on the page, that's not what writing is. Writing is perpetually drafting, rewriting. It's finding the imprecision, the slackness in the language. No, that's not what I think. That's not what I believe. This isn't what I... Mm. And it's the constant yeah. process of negotiation with exactly. these words yep. that you're imperfectly putting on the page. It's and the, the ideas that are imperfectly formed in your exactly. head. Exactly. There is, is no doing without no. that. And that's why broadcast is an inherently more promiscuous medium... Yes, I couldn't agree more. ...than print, I think especially for analysis and that sort of thing. That great E.M. Forster quote, I'm sure I've said on this show, how do I know what I think until I see what I say? Yeah. It's, that's exactly, yes. And so your argument is, this is a muscle. You, you need to be engaged in that process and that every opportunity you take to avoid that, you're weakening a faculty. Yes, that's exactly that right. Yes, and I'll, I'll even say more than that. That the resistance that the process of writing gives the writer, and it is a gift, that resistance, the fact that the page seems to kick back at you, that the imperfection, the imprecision of the words almost insult you on the page, and you have to keep mm. negotiating with them. I had this, one of my early careers, I don't know if I've ever told you this, was translation. I loved translating. I love mm. translating, and I hate it in equal measure. Because there is this thing that's indescribable where you are staring at a particular combination of words on the page and you know the sense, but the right rendering keeps eluding you. And then there's that moment when the right word presents itself, the right formulation. It's not a word for word, but the sense presents itself. And it's almost an epiphany. And you realize... Yeah, I mean, you know it's correct. It's, it's almost self-justifying. I think good writing is precisely that. You come to this moment where after wrestling and deleting 
and writing over, over the top of and scrapping things all together and restarting, you come to the moment where it's not just this is what I wanted to say, but it's also I now think more clearly because yes. of the process of wrestling. And Waleed, the number of times that I receive submissions from people, <laughs> otherwise, I imagine good, intelligent, conscientious academics. And these are at best, at best, first drafts. And they are presenting it to me as a finished product. Or the number of times that I receive something and the writing is sterile and banal and obvious. In both circumstances, there is a fundamental evasion, I think, of the moral task that's involved in the process of self-expression, of coming to understand what one thinks because of the inherently rigorous, resistant action of writing. And I'm terrified that if we keep taking away, especially from students, the ability to go through that process, mm. then it's not just the capacity to write that's going to be irreparably damaged, but it's also the capacity to think in ways that aren't either sloppy and emotive on the one hand, or that aren't incredibly conformist on the other. Mm. We now have a guest. Oh, have we got a guest. Naomi Barron is Professor Emerita of Linguistics at American University in Washington, D.C. She's the author of a number of remarkable books on reading in a digital age, but it's her forthcoming book, Who Wrote This? How AI and the Lure of Efficiency Threaten Human Writing. That, well, obviously commends her to our attention. Naomi, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. I'm delighted to be here. So it seems to me that there are two temptations that we can fall into in response to the advent of something like ChatGPT. One is, this is a curiosity, this is fun, what's the harm? Uh, in other words, this is just another one of those little online toys that we're regularly provided with. The other is what some call techno-panic or technophobia. This is the end of a crucial aspect of human literacy as we know it. I mean, in your book, you try to negotiate something like a more constructive response. But I'll just ask you to start with, how should we be orienting ourselves, let's just put it that way, to the emergence of this surprisingly fluent generative AI? The first thing we need to do is ask how much is really new and how much is this being presented to us as a toy as opposed to are we OpenAI's guinea pigs? If you look at the development of this kind of technology, they're called large language models. They've been around since, in essence, 2018. That, that's old. <laughs> um, and many companies... Google, for one, and DeepMind, another company that's owned by Google but is a separate operation, and then there are separate uh, companies such as AI21, which is uh, an Israeli company, and now there's OpenAI. They've all been taking the same essential kinds of language modeling to come up with ways of generating text. What ChatGPT represents is a very neat sleight of hand, as far as I'm concerned, by OpenAI to get a huge amount of data on what's working, what's not working, so that they can fine-tune their next iteration, which would be GPT-4. Hmm. GPT-3 has already been out in many commercial products. It's been out in Microsoft land, because Microsoft paid a bunch of money, um, started with a billion, and then there were two more billion. The next 10 billion are waiting in the wings. So some of the technology that you see from OpenAI through chat, through GPT-3 has already been out there. What's new, what shocked the world, is we everyday users got to try the stuff out for free. There are paid versions of some of this stuff already. It's not brand new. But we suddenly said, wait a second, I didn't know that was out there. And I didn't know I could get it. All you had to do was give your email address and set up a, a password and you were in. That's what changed, not the real novelty of the technology. When you start going behind the scenes, ChatGPT's technology is old technology. And by the way, what Google is going to be issuing, and it's not going to be released to the general public, it's going out to trusted 
testers, I think was the words that Sundar Pichai used in announcing Google Bard. That's an old technology that comes from a kind of large language model called Lambda, and it's a slimmed down version. It's going to be a sort of milk toast version. These are not new. These are two companies competing with each other for, for revenues, and they're using us as guinea pigs, at least in the case of OpenAI. Hmm. I mean, this is excellent. You know, we've been warned for ages that if a product is free, if you're not paying for it, then you yourself are, in fact, the product. So the fact that this has been a huge public relations success and that people are now trying out these various permutations. I mean, this is, you know, all of these are numerical. This is the reading of the particular patterns that exist in text that already exist online as a way of then predicting what might then reasonably follow from the particular query that's been submitted. I mean, it's wrong to say then that there's anything about this. It might be generative, but of course it's not creative. I guess... Oh, no, go on. We'll come back to creative, please. Well, no, no, please, please enlighten me. All right. So there are lots of discussions about whether AI in general can be a source of creativity uh, by U.S. law and probably by Australian law, too. Um, in order for something that is novel or creative to get a copyright, which is one way of saying this really is new stuff, you have to be a human. However... If the kinds of things that can be produced using the same kinds of underlying principles that humans use when they create music, to some extent when they create art, and to to a significant extent when we create language, and I'll just talk about written language, if those things are codable, as it were, algorithmizable, Mm. (laughs) then it's not clear what you want to call creative and what you don't. Part of the problem, and I've written about this, is that humans feel threatened if something else could be called creative. So we don't want to call it creative. We want to say, well, it sort of looks as if a human did it, but it didn't, and therefore it's not creative. But if we want to see creativity, and this is taking things now away from AI to what it means to be a human being, if As humans, we care about coming up with new things. That should be the reward. If society cares about um, the things that Sigmund Freud came up with in terms of how to analyze what's going on in our heads, if we care about the calculus, which was invented at least by one of the people of, of Sir Isaac Newton, if we care about the result and it makes a difference to the way as a society functions, then that's a different story from, yes, you count as creative if it was created by AI, or no, you don't count as creative. So I think we have to keep those stories a little bit straight from each other. When it comes to language, I'm a linguist, remember? (laughs) Um, It is absolutely true that if you look at how all of these large language models work. They predict what is likely to be the next word in a phrase, in a sentence, based upon a statistical analysis of those gazillion words and collocations of words that are in its data set. But now think about what humans do when they write. If we don't write with words and with sentence structures, that other people already share and that for darn sure are represented either in print or digitized, then we're not understood. Hmm. You take someone like James Joyce, whose language is off kilter in so many ways, and we struggle to make sense of it, but we struggle to make sense of it in terms of what more normal, as it were, that's in quotation marks, language looks like. So one of the reasons that all of these large language models of which GPT-3 is probably the best known, ChatGPT is just sort of the the next kid sibling, um, and Bard will be the same. One of the reasons they work is because they use words and sentence structures that we understand. That's how languages allow us to communicate with each other. So we have to be a little careful when we say, oh, humans are going to come up with something novel. You look at some of the things that GPT-3 has come up with, GPT-2 before it, and they were quite novel and quite interesting and are used by people to 
kickstart their thinking and to say, oh, that's a better phrase than I would come up with. That's a better plot line than I came up with. So we have to be a little cautious before we dismiss these tools as sterile. Hmm. So you're, you're saying it operates in a similar way to a thesaurus, really, in some cases, right? I mean, a thesaurus is, I mean, it's not AI, but you consult it and, and a suggestion from outside of yourself comes and sometimes you adopt it. And right. So if we're, if we're talking about something like pseudo-write, which is intended to help you get past writer's block or to give a next sentence or maybe a next paragraph, the idea is to say, oh, human, yeah, I could build on that in the same way than when I consult a thesaurus. I say, well, maybe that's a better sentence, a, a better word than the one I had in mind. There are lots of tools out there now. They do for sentences what a thesaurus does for words. Mm. So there's a whole progression now available from that idea of a thesaurus. So this is, I think, why I'm hesitant to embrace what you've just articulated. It (laughs) seems to rest on the assumption that the outcome is the thing we're interested in. Mm, That's right. And I'm not sure that's the thing I'm interested in. It's a thing I'm interested in, but it's not the thing. I Okay, I like the thesaurus, and maybe you'll be justified in telling me, well, I shouldn't like it because it it violates a principle I'm about to articulate. But I like the idea that there are some problems of expression or even of research or whatever that don't have a ready-to-hand available technological solution. So we are thereby forced to engage in the struggle ourselves and to figure it out. And that there is, it's the enriching nature of that process, not the outcome, the enriching nature of that process that is the thing to be cherished and that's at most, most under threat here. Of course I agree with you. Of course the process via which we write, via which we think, via which we create whatever you know, whether it's a, a painting, whether it's um, a fugue, the process of doing that is what makes us human. The important thing to know about the way that today's AI functions is that we haven't a clue how it's doing what it does. By which I mean, we know that we have programmed in, predict what the next word is going to be. How it's actually, it, the AI, is going about its work we don't know. That's why there's been such a call for what's called white box AI mm. or explicable AI to say, hello, you know, is there anybody home inside? <laughs> Could you tell me what's happening? And that's a challenge because the scientists, the computer scientists who design this stuff will tell you, I don't really know how it manages to do what it does. Being human is being able to know to a significant extent how you managed to come up with what you did. You could say, Eureka, I just had this epiphany, but then that epiphany probably is based on your experience, on the people you've spoken with, on what you've read, on maybe what you had for dinner. It's based on a whole range of things. See, see, that's the bit I'm not sure I agree with because one of the things I hear so often from people especially the best at what they do, you know, the Paul McCartneys or or whatever of the world, is they don't know. Something just happened. It just arrived. The song wrote itself. They, like, it's all those intangible things, actually, that are the magic of it. (laughs) Yes and no. Because guess what? The kind of, the kinds of chords that you would play, the kinds of tempos, the kinds of structural pieces that go into music that we feel we understand, even if the particular words or the particular melody that's chosen came from Paul McCartney doesn't know where, I don't know where, but there are all these other elements that built up our ability to say, yes, I understand it. Take someone like Van Gogh's work. When he was painting... People thought he was nuts. 
and he may well have been in some profound ways. <laughs> but when his work was presented, or when that of the Impressionist, why were they called? Why were the Impressionist called the Impressionist? Because they weren't even painting real things. It was just some impression of things. Thank you. That's not what painting is supposed to be about. And we redefined our notion of what it means to understand a work of painting. We changed our vocabulary. We changed our syntax as readers, as it were, of artwork. But there still had to be principles. I mean, it still was paint on a canvas, as opposed to painting your toenails or throwing things at a wall. So we change our our notions of how we structure something, of how we understand something creative by understanding pieces of the product without necessarily understanding the secret sauce. I believe in secret sauce, but the secret sauce only works if you have something to put the sauce on. This is true. No, this that, is that wonderful. That is true. And secret sauce is lovely. I think everyone can agree with that. You've kept using the term understanding, Naomi, and I'm so intrigued mm. by it because, I mean, something that I've long been interested in is Wittgenstein's particular concept of understanding. How understanding works when I understand the pattern. I can to some extent either predict what comes next or I can appreciate mm -hmm. what comes next when it arrives. The pleasure that one gets when a wine is coupled, for instance, with a food with which it belongs. The pleasure one gets when a chord progression cycles through and arrives at what it is that ought to come next. But I think you're right that there is something essential in the process of human writing of human, I uh, will return briefly to the term creativity. And the <laughs> example of Joyce, the example of Joyce is exactly right. When part of the joy and the frustration is when what comes next is not supposed to come next. When there is that kink in understanding. When something breaks and instead of just seeing what easily follows from the next, you're left in a state of abeyance. I have no idea. And you have to somehow reorient Yourself, All of these things, it seems to me, I mean, you're absolutely right. These are essential to the creative process. It's not just that understanding can't follow, but it's a different form of understanding. Understanding, if you like, has to reorient, has to find new pathways around which that thing can then be, if you like, comprehended. And I guess what I'm so reluctant to lose, as I know you are, are those moments of seemingly or temporally insurmountable difficulty in expressing ourselves, in finding the right tone to respond appreciatively, humanely to an email request, or to a plea for understanding or a, a statement of offense that finds the appropriate form of expression in response to a topic that you just don't know what you think about, or a line of narrative where the the character at the center of the story ends up taking on a life of her or his own. It's that kink, that thing that seems to resist understanding, that I worry that these technologies that we've grabbed to ourselves so readily as providing that little bridge. Here's the little nudge forward. Here's the next step, and then maybe you can go on from there. There's something salutary, isn't there, in lingering and not quite knowing what comes next, not being willing to take the step until you're the one who's taking it. I'm glad you raised the word understanding. For starters, and then I'll get to what you're really talking about, but for starters, there's talk within the AI field about natural language generation. Okay, I get that, producing new text, and natural language understanding. When I write natural language understanding, I put quotation marks around the understanding part mm, because computers do not understand anything about language. They know how to parse it in an algorithmic way, but we gave up. We meaning uh, computer scientists, in trying to make natural language processing more generally, which is generation plus understanding, we gave up trying to use the rules of actual human languages because it wasn't working. So what we did is said, okay, try another model. And first it was a statistical model, and now it's a deep neural network model. But there's no actual understanding in any way that a human being would 
understand. But going to to your point, I think the issue is a growing number of people have no interest in putting in the work to make sense of the things that are difficult to grasp. Ask yourself how many people, and I can speak for the United States, I can't for Australia, how many people are reading the harder works, you know, not Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, but the harder works of Joyce? And the answer is precious few. It takes effort. In fact, if you look at the statistics for an awful lot of countries, especially the United States, but if you look at things like studies done of 15-year-olds taking PISA exams, you know, an international exam that OECD administers to dozens and dozens of countries around the world, people are reading less. And they're reading less of long-form call it novels, even short stories, than they used to. So if you're not working to understand in reading... And reading is a wonderful source for stimulating you as a writer. Then, how much work do you even know how to put into writing something that's individual and that will require understanding in the sense you're describing it from your potential reader? That's my worry. Yes. <laughs> is it <laughs> your well, well, I mean, yes, precisely. And so the solution is either, I'm, I'm not ascribing this to you, Naomi, please, but <laughs> the solution is either a kind of craven accommodation where we realize that literacy in both the reading and the writing aspect are possibly irrevocably changing. And hence you end up with solutions such as those offered in uh, satirically in Dave Eggers' The Every, where mm-hmm. difficult novels are turned into easy-understand, predictable short stories, and in which case we are swimming in a sea of predictive texts, where uh, our language becomes so circumscribed and curtailed and so utterly conformist that, I mean, we've already seen, haven't we, certain words that have just become part of the vernacular, ungrammatically so, like impact. I mean, I, I despise the way that impact has been. And and yet it's then become, it's just, I mean, to say that our language has come to copy predictive texts, uh, I I think is is accurate. So either there's a kind of craven accommodation whereby we give ourselves over to a regime of predictive writing and these kind of, this scaffolding so that we don't have to engage. Or we try to, and I'm I'm not advocating kind of techno-panic or technophobia, but my God, there is something about the task, the holding on to the virtue of the difficult that surely has got to be worth preserving, celebrating, and with all that we can muster as a shared uh, human and democratic effort, inculcating wherever we possibly can in our students and young adults. Could I add a little bit of history to the discussion? <laughs> I know impact is not on your list of favorite terms as a verb, but as a linguist, I can promise you that for any language, and I can speak particularly for the English language, meanings of words, grammatical usages of words, taking a noun and making a verb out of it or vice versa. I mean, we do Google things, right? Google didn't start life as a verb. It started life as a name of a company that was a noun. Language is going to change. And that had nothing to do with AI. And it's going to keep on going, whether we like it or not. The second thing is We have been taking, I guess, versions of these simplification of whether they're novels or stories. We've been doing this for quite some time. I don't know if Reader's Digest ever made it to Australia (laughs) or Reader's Digest condensed books or things like like Cliff's Notes that summarized plots for students. So I remember when I was an undergraduate, I was a literature major, and once I really ran out of time and I read the summary in one of these printed books with summaries of famous novels, that's been around for decades and decades. So the notion of language being simplified for people who don't put the work in. In that case, it was me for just one. It was only one book, I promise. Um, That's not new. So my bigger concern 
is what kinds of goals we want to set. And let's just talk educationally, because I know the two of you spoke a lot about education. Well, let me add my two cents, if I might. The problem with the way an awful lot of education has been run, and I can only really speak for the United States, is that we decided that written essays, written exams outside of a class um, was a great way to assess what students were learning. If you wanted to be serious about this endeavor, what you needed to do is have conversations, teacher and student, about what do you want to write about? What are you thinking about? What's interesting to you? Uh, throw some ideas together and we'll talk them through together. And then put together you know, a kind of summary of what you think this research paper is about. And then let's talk about it. And then show me a draft and I'll give you comments. And then you'll get back to me. Do you have any idea how much work that takes? And this has been a challenge for the teaching of English composition, which is a requirement in most colleges and universities in the United States for every student passing through the portals. And it's, it's a mind-numbing job to do all of that grading if you take your job seriously. And therefore, what's happened over the decades is we kept giving the writing assignments, but the vast majority of the teachers giving the writing assignments just say, oh, that's great. You get an A, you get an F, um, you get one comment from me, maybe if I'm really being generous with my time, a couple of comments, but you haven't really worked through the paper anyway. So if you generate a paper, and I don't care whether it's with ChatGPT or, or it becomes from some version of GPT-3 or BARD, or what, what, you know, the, the tools are going to keep coming. If you weren't reading the paper seriously anyway, what difference does it make? So what we need to be talking about is what kind of pedagogy do we want? Not just so we don't have students cheat, but so we have them think about the process of thinking, the process of learning, the process of redoing. And the hitch is that takes a huge amount of teacher time. And most people either don't have it or they don't have the skills to do it well. Wow. Or and it requires they just say... Not my job. I'm a history teacher. I work on the American Civil War. I don't grade papers with that degree of finesse. Go let somebody else do it, which means yeah. nobody does it. Yeah, yeah, because they want to research rather than teach or something like that. I mean, the, the other alternative is you have fewer students, and so you stop this sort of battery farming of undergraduates and so on. But that would completely undermine the approach to education we've taken and its connection to the economy, especially in a place like Australia where you need a university degree to do anything. Yeah, There's a fundamental change there. Turns out after all that, Scott Zizek was right. <laughs> chat GPT in and chat GPT marks and then everyone goes home. Naomi, thank you for <laughs> delivering us to that very weird point. That was not your fault. That was mine. But um, we appreciate your input. It has been extraordinary. It's been great to speak to you. Thank you. I've very much enjoyed the conversation. Naomi Barron, Professor Emerita of Linguistics at American University in Washington, D.C., also the author of the forthcoming book, Who Wrote This? How AI and the Lure of Efficiency Threaten Human Writing. That's it from us today. We'll see you next week.